We have the privilege this morning of welcoming uh, students, well, we always have students from the University of Tulsa as a part of RUF, so if you students could just wave your hands and say, hi, we're here, yeah. Uh, so, most of you know, some of you don't, uh, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, is an on-campus ministry, has a special place in my heart, uh, because before I came here, I was an RUF campus minister uh, for nine years at Lehigh University, and it was a great, Lehigh University is like an hour north of Philadelphia, and had a great time doing that, saw a lot of students come to faith in Jesus, got to see amazing growth from students, and so RUF is absolutely near and dear to my heart. And so I'd like to welcome Caleb Harlan up. Caleb is the campus minister for RUF at the University of Tulsa. And Caleb is, this is his second year in RUF, and he's going to talk to you some about RUF. Thanks, Thanks. Caleb. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, TJ, for leading us in worship earlier. Uh, I would give anything to have your voice. Um, very beautiful. Uh, it's good to be with you all. I sat down in my van this morning uh, to drive here to church, and I, I felt the tightness, and I felt like I had to unbuckle, um, which is the sign to me that we're three weeks into school, and I've been eating Chick-fil-A and burritos and pizza and donuts and barbecue. Hello, and this is my child, Micah, who came up with me. Um, all right, well, my name's Caleb. Like he said, it's great to be with you. This is Micah. Uh, now that you're up here, I may as well introduce you. And then my wife, Maggie, of almost seven years, and we have a two-year-old, Brayden, uh, and I've been at, uh, on campus for two years with RUF. Before that, worked here in, in town at a church. Uh, graduated from TU in 2011. Um, and so, hey, buddy, why don't you go over there with mommy? That'd be great. Um, hey, who knows what RUF is? I'd love to know just on the front end. Does anyone know what RUF is? Raise your hand if you know, yeah. Several of you. Oh, okay, good. I love to hear just kind of where we're at. Um, I'm going to show a video. It's a one minute long video just to give you a little snapshot of what we're doing on campus. Um, I want to give you a few warnings. One, it's kind of hard to hear, so we'll have to be quiet. And second, there's something with the color that it looks like the people speaking are like ghosts. So just beware. So when you see it, you'll now know what's going on. Uh, but let's watch this and I'll talk for a little bit.
All right. Uh, that gives you a little flavor for some of the things perhaps that we do. Um, but RUF is the PCA's college ministry. Uh, and how the PCA sees college ministry is instead of having a church uh, with a college minister, if they have uh, a, a church in a, in a town where there is a university, the PCA sends someone on to their territory. And that's what we do. So there's several PCA churches here in Tulsa, and in a sense, I work for all of them. And I work on campus, and I sit with them, and I, I sit in the lives uh, of, of 18 to 22-year-olds every day, and hear about how they're doing, and have a chance to uh, speak into things, and to listen well, and to show them who Jesus is. Um, and so that's what RUF is. It's a, it's a real privilege for me to be able to do that on a, on a daily basis, um, to, to, to live where they're at. I want to tell you kind of two stories of, to give you a flavor for, for who comes. Um, at the university, as you, might, as you may expect, uh, there are all sorts of different people in all different stages of life. There are people who come to our university who uh, have been in church their whole life, and there are others who uh, come from California, for example, and have never stepped foot in a church. Um, we have a student, for, for example, who grew up in an atheist family. He came walking by, and here we are sitting at our table um, at one of the organization events, and he comes and chats with us for a little bit. And we uh, engage with him intellectually, and we engage with him with a community of love. And over the next few months, I meet with him regularly, and he gets part of our small group and comes to our large group services. And six months later, um, we're, we're sitting together, uh, this, this past summer actually, we're sitting together, and he says, hey, I think I've realized I want to follow Jesus, that I believe Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. And he was baptized just a month ago. Someone who would have otherwise never, never known who Jesus was comes and randomly and very sovereignly walks past our table, and, um, and we're, we meet him. On the flip side of that, we also have students who are raised in the church. And so we have someone, uh, for example, who was raised in the church his whole life, and last year I was sitting across the table from him and just said, hey, like, tell me what the gospel is. Let's talk about this. And he really didn't, couldn't, couldn't articulate what the gospel was. Um, raised in the church his whole life, and we're able to engage over the next few weeks through Bible studies together and get him involved in our community. And now a year later, he's one of our leaders um, and one of the most active people that we have bringing people to RUF and ultimately bringing people to the Lord. Um, and so that kind of gives you a, a, the spectrum of, of what sort of people that we reach. Um, I'd say a third of our group is non-Christians. Um, there are all sorts of faiths that come into our group, whether Muslims, which is a very international university, whether Muslims or Buddhists or atheists, um, and, and they come in and they are welcomed uh, where we can talk about what religion is and what, who is God and what is their purpose in this world and on campus. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was struck by the passage here in 2 Timothy, and I'll kind of close with this, where, where Paul is, is in chains and he says, um, though I may be bound, the word of God is not bound. I was struck a few weeks ago in our first large group service where there's 150 college students packed into this small room to hear the word of God preached. And I just took a second as like, it's 2019 and there are 18 to 22 year olds in your midst that are passionate about the word of God and believe the gospel and want to believe all the more. Um, and so if you're interested more about what, uh, what RUF does, uh, please come talk to me. I'll be mingling and, and hanging out after the service. Um, I so appreciate the many of you who, who partner with our work financially and through prayer. If you're interested in doing that, um, I also would love to, to uh, put you on my, my monthly newsletter and, and interact with you on a, on a more regular basis. 
Um, you all mean a lot to, to what we do. You actually make it happen. So I do appreciate it. And thanks, Scott, for, for the minute to, to share. Before you sit down, Caleb, <clears throat> I just want to ask Caleb a couple questions. So each week, Caleb preaches. What are you preaching through this fall? Uh, we ju- actually just finished uh, doing a three-week series through the prodigal son story, looking at the story from the story of the father and the young, lost younger and lost older son. Okay. What are you excited about for this semester? Good question. Um, I'm excited actually for the leaders. We have about 45 students on our student leadership team, um, and I'm excited to see them grow both, both with their relationship with the Lord and also with each other, that we can kind of be the salt and light of campus kind of in a, on a more condensed uh, in a more condensed group. That's great. So, um, Comparing and contrasting, stay up here, you can put the mic back though. Comparing and contrasting a lot of different on-campus ministries, friends, RUF is the Cadillac of the campus ministries, because Caleb has a, he went to seminary, yeah, he's I got meant a master's to say that. degree. What's that? I said I meant to say that. Yeah. He's being as he should, being bashful and kind of putting the bigger stuff on me, um, very few campus ministers have an ordained guy going in, and Caleb's having, when I say top-level conversations about um, prolegomena and words that the average person doesn't know. I don't know what that is. Um, I went to Westminster, and Caleb went to Reformed Seminary, so maybe we read a little more. and let me tell you, too, look, we have an, a really great opportunity to interact with Caleb and the students at TU. We're going to have a TU student baptized here probably sometime in October. Really excited about that. And if you are a TU grad and you have a heart, you have a heart for that university or college students, Caleb does need your prayers, but he needs your money. Um, he's got, you saw one of his children who's going to start eating more and more, right? Um, this is a very practical way to love Caleb. Trinity, we support Caleb, but just a little bit. Um, so if you're interested, please hit Caleb up. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pray for Caleb. Thanks. Father, thank you for Caleb and Maggie and the kids and their call to RUF at TU. Have that group continue to grow deep and wide. That the gospel would change Christians to see you truly. And we, we pray that the gospel would continue to change non-Christians there from places like Jinx and Owasso to places like China, and Cambodia, Indonesia. Father, enable Caleb to run the race well, to preach the gospel truly, and provide for his and the students every need. We thank you for this opportunity, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Caleb. Thank you, Caleb. Can we thank Caleb together? I'd like to ask you to turn to page 7 in your bulletins. Before we greet each other with peace, we have the privilege of confessing our faith each week from a historic summary of the Gospels, and this week's come... This week's question and answer come from the Westminster Larger Catechism. How is justification an act of God's free grace? Although Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, 
Yet inasmuch as God accepts the satisfaction from a surety, which he might have demanded of them, and did provide this surety, his own, own, imputing his righteousness to them, and requiring nothing of them for their justification but faith, which also is his gift, their justification is to them of free grace. Now,
All right, guys, if you could, find your seats. The scripture that we'll be looking at this morning is from 2 Samuel 9, and I think it's important that we have a little bit of background. So, uh, Matt, could you put up the chart? So the words are a little small, and you can't really see totally what's going on, but I'm going to walk you through what's going on. The first king of Israel was Saul, and he was chosen by the people. Well, it didn't take long until Saul was not a good guy. And Saul had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan's best friend was David. But there's a problem with that, because David while Saul was king, was chosen to be king, not by the people, but by God. And so, what would happen in in a time like this, uh, where you had maybe kings conflicting, Saul was trying to kill David. And he tried to do that for years and years. And eventually, Saul himself died. He died in a battle, His son, Jonathan, David's best, best friend in the whole world, died in battle. And on that day, Jonathan had a son who was in the care of a wet nurse. And that son's name was Mephibosheth. And when the wet nurse had heard that Saul and Jonathan had died in battle, she was sure that David was going to come after Jonathan's heir, Mephibosheth. So she began to flee, but in the process of fleeing to a place of hiding, she dropped Mephibosheth, and it ended up that he became lame in both his feet. Very possible that he broke his Achilles, tendons on both, or broke both ankles, but whatever it was, Mephibosheth was never the same. And so you could imagine that's a fairly tragic life as a young man. Your father and your grandfather die on the same day. Your nurse, trying to get you away, drops you and forever cripples you. In the text this morning, what we're going to look at is David's first interaction with Mephibosheth. So if you're willing and able, please stand. As I read God's word from 2 Samuel Chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, 
came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for, for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce and your master's grandson so that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What I want you to see this morning is this. A great cost to Jesus. A great cost to Jesus. The free grace of God meets us where we are and never lets us go. A great cost to Jesus. The free grace of God meets us where we are and never lets us go. This is a sermon series on grace, and so I want us to look at four things, and they're in your outline. Four things that we learn about grace from today's passage. The first is grace meets us where we are, the grace is free, the grace is costly, and finally, that grace is indissoluble. That means it cannot be dissolved. It is ongoing. So let's begin by looking at how grace meets us where we are. We have the strange character Mephibosheth. And twice, in verses 3 and 13, it says he was lame in both his feet. As I said before we read Scripture, this is, this is just a tragic character that had once been the king of Israel. And now he's hiding in caves because he fears for his life. He has to be taken around by different people because he can't walk. And he's at low debar in verse 4. That literally means barren place. He's at barren place. A lame man at barren place. It's kind of a, kind of a strange situation. 
how Scripture kind of puts this up like this. But what it's trying to show us about Mephibosheth is this is a guy who was broken. He was absolutely broken. He had nothing to his name. He had nothing to his physical body. He was broken. If something was going to change, it had to be an outside force exerting itself upon Mephibosheth. So we have him, and we look at him, and maybe, maybe a part of us pities him as we read the passage, but friends, we are Mephibosheth. We are Mephibosheth. We're hiding. We do this all the time. I alluded to it in the pastoral prayer earlier. But it's not like, it's not like when a child hides in a fort, right? I love it when kids are of the age where if they hide their head, they think their whole body is hidden, right? When they're really little, 18 months, maybe two years, they'll hide your head and say, you can't see me, and the rear end's sticking out. Like, no, I see you, right? And then they become a little bit better at it, and they learn how to build forts, maybe in the living room with blankets, and they're hiding, and you say, you don't know where I am, not realizing their voice actually makes a noise. It's like, yeah, you're in there. The problem with adults is that we're way too sophisticated to hide like that. I mean, we, we, can, we hide from God all the time. I mean, Christians regularly avoid communion with our God. There's a lot of different reasons behind it. By communion, do not hear Bible reading. Atheists can read the Bible and not commune with God. But we avoid it. Most of it's in us. It doesn't have anything to do with him. If we're like Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth needed an outside source coming in, what does grace do? Grace meets us where we are. Grace meets us where we are. If we think about the way that the New Testament speaks of it, Christ did not wait for you to get your act together until he would die for you, until he would save you. One of my favorite scriptures in Romans is Romans 5.8. For God shows his love toward us in that while... We were still sinners. Christ died for us. It's a reminder to us church people who easily, like we looked at last week, become the older brother, the self-righteous type, that Jesus didn't die for the righteous. He died for sinners. And as Paul Delorier said in the Confession of Sin, we are, as Christians, we are made new but we are not yet perfected. You and I have so much sin that we see and even more that we don't. But Christ wasn't waiting on us to get our acts together. And in a very real way, he's not waiting on you to get your act together today. You know, we have a hymn that we sing here that says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you wait to come to Jesus, 
to interact with him until you've got this corrected or that bad habit eliminated, friend, you will never come to him at all. Never. And what's interesting to me and beautiful about the Christian religion is that Christ doesn't want, quote-unquote, good people. He wants broken people. He wants broken people. Mephibosheth was in a place where grace could actually meet him. He wasn't parading himself through the streets on a specially made wheelchair saying, I am Saul's grandson. He's laid up limp in a place called Barren Place. He was in a place where grace could come out and meet him, and it did. Grace came out and met him. So the first thing that we see here is that grace meets us where we are. Mephibosheth didn't change. It's that grace came to him in the form of David. The second thing that we notice is that grace is free. Look at verse 1 on page 8 of your bulletin. David says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Notice what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say, is there anyone who is deserving? The text just says, is there anyone? Is there anyone at the house of Saul? I mean, Saul had tried to execute David on numerous occasions and kind of within ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern warfare rites, David had the right to pursue every one of Saul's offsprings and execute them. But instead, David is saying, is there an offspring of Saul that I can show kindness to? Not is there anyone deserving, but is there anyone? And I want you to notice too, David's not looking for one of Saul's offsprings. He's not looking for Mephibosheth because he might be serviceable to him. David doesn't say, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that he may be a manager over here or that he may be a slave over here? Is there anyone of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness is what it says. Is there someone I can show kindness to? And all that Mephibosheth had to do was show up. All he had to do was show up. That was it. So it was free to him, but not just free. It was lavishly free. Look at verse 11. It says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the sons of the king. This is a, this is a huge statement in the ancient Near East. It doesn't say, so Mephibosheth was given a sack of flour and sent on his way. That's not how you and I think about grace. We think about grace in this way. Oh, well, I gave him a sack of flour. He's good. David is inviting Mephibosheth to his table to eat with him forever next to his children, like one of the sons of a king. You and I think about grace typically in very small and transactional ways. I'll give you an example. It was about four or five years ago when we were living in Pennsylvania. 
and we were in the middle of a blizzard. Uh, I think we got 36 inches of snow over the course of a day and a half, something like that. Um, it's great in the blizzard until you have to dig yourself out. Those of you who have lived in a place where you shovel snow know that that's not fun. And I get a, I get a text from my neighbor. The neighbor lives from me to the soundboard. And he says, hey, we're making brownies. He didn't tell me what kind of brownies. But he said, hey, we're making brownies. And we don't have any vegetable oil. Do you have a quarter cup of vegetable oil? And I thought, well, this is an opportunity to show kindness, right? So you know what I did? I got a bottle. I gave him a quarter a cup of vegetable oil. Then I gave him about a cup and a half more than that. And I closed it up and I looked at it and I go, man, I'm so gracious to people. <laughs> a cup and a half of vegetable oil in a blizzard. Who's a hero? Right? So I take it to him and, you know, he's happy because they get to make brownies. But then I'm, I walk back and I'm, you know, doing my little, I just did something awesome strut and the snow's hit me in the face. And I think, you arrogant blanky blank. It's vegetable oil. I didn't give him eternal life. Vegetable oil. That's how you and I think about it oftentimes. Like the grace is this minor gift. David is welcoming Mephibosheth at his table. His family, his beloved, the apples of his eye sit there. And so does a lame outcast of his greatest enemy. That's who sits at the table. And that's how it's pictured in the New Testament too. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. You bring nothing to it. Romans eleven six. You know, but if salvation is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace ceases to be grace if there is one ounce of effort in it. Let me paint you a picture. Say that you invite a friend over for dinner. And you say, hey, we're going to do this upright. I'm going to make rack of lamb and several other French dishes you've never heard of. I got the best wine, and I just, I just want you to come. I just want to hospitality you into happiness. And you show up, and you have dinner, and a lovely conversation. The food is exquisite. Your friends, hospitality, exquisite. And then you turn and say, oh, I need to go, and you grab your jacket. You open the door and turn around, and you say, now, how much do I owe you for the meal? We interact with God so often like that. You've given me this grace. Now, you know, what do you, what do you want for it? What do you want for it? The thing is, the only way that you get to the party is by bringing nothing at all. Certainly no dishes. It's not a potluck. You don't bring your money. You bring nothing. That's the only way you get to the party. You know, a 19th century preacher was once asked by someone in his congregation, 
is, well, you know, well, pastor, if, if we don't go to God with our good works, what do we go to him with? And the preacher responded, the only thing you go to God with are your sins, because that's the only thing you can call your own. He doesn't want our good works, as we saw last week. Our good works, Isaiah says, are filthy rags. Filthy rags. And so for us, the recipients of grace, grace is completely and utterly free. Completely, utterly free. But to the one giving grace, grace is costly. Grace is costly. David gives a seat at his table to Mephibosheth. That's a big deal. Grace is costly. Let me paint you a picture here. Because this question was asked of me many times when I was in RUF. If God is really gracious, why doesn't he just forgive everybody's sin? The answer is, sin offends God. And grace is actually costly. Say you have a, a friend over for dinner. Not the same friend that you had over previously. You have a friend over for dinner, and your friend bumps your lamp and breaks your lamp. Now, what do you do? Someone is going to pay for that lamp, right? Either... Your friend pays for the lamp by replacing it. Or your friend pays for the lamp because he didn't, you don't get the lamp replaced, but you go around talking behind his back. Or your friend pays for the lamp because you get so furious and you just punch him. Or you pay for the lamp. You pay to replace it. Let's say you don't want to replace it. You pay for the lamp by not having light in that area. Sin always requires a, re- a replacement. It's an offense. And that makes grace immensely costly. God just can't wipe away all the sin and say, oh, it's just done. It has been costing us, and grace has been costing him. Grace is costly. I want you to notice the end of verse 10. It's a really funny statement that's kind of thrown into here. Verse 9 ends, To all his house have given your, your master's grandson... And then verse 10 says, And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And it ends this way. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Why would it say that? It's already made the point earlier about Ziba's position why, after all of this, would it say Naziba had 15 sons and 20 servants? It says it to show that the one who might deserve a seat at the table doesn't get it. Mephibosheth has one son. He is the grandson of David's archenemy. And he's lame. Ziba has been a faithful servant. Transferred from Saul to David. He's been faithful to David. Ziba has 15 sons. Ziba has 20 servants. 
Who gets the seat at the table? Not the person who deserves it. Mephibosheth does. The broken, the downcast, and the outcast. Why? Why is it that Mephibosheth gets a seat at the table and Ziba does not? It goes back to verse 1, where it says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I, might show, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? For Jonathan's sake. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jonathan earned Mephibosheth's seat at the king's table at the cost of his life. Jonathan earned Mephibosheth's seat at the table at the cost of his life. If Jonathan were alive, who gets that seat? Jonathan. Not Mephibosheth. The only way Mephibosheth sits at the table is if Jonathan dies. Do you hear the parallels to the gospel? Jesus earned your seat at the table at the cost of his life. The only way you get to go to the table is if he dies. And that's, some of you know this, this kind of churchy acronym for grace that says God's riches at Christ's expense. But it's absolutely true. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, friends, is costly to the one giving grace. And that brings us to our final point. Number four, grace is indissoluble. It cannot be dissolved. It cannot be broken. Three times the text says that Mephibosheth ate always at the king's table. We have that in verse 7, verses 10, and 13. Why does it say three times in 13 verses that he ate always at the king's table? Because it's showing that the king isn't being impulsive or capricious. He made a measured and thoughtful choice to extend grace to Mephibosheth not just once, not just twice, but always. And we can say the same of Jesus, right? He is not impulsive or capricious when you mess up. He is not wavering in his love for you. The true king, David's heir, has indissoluble grace for you. In John 13, it says, having loved his own, he loved them till the very end. In the passage that Katie Roberts read earlier, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let me ask you a question. And I want you to answer honestly. I don't want you to answer theologically. I want you to answer in your head honestly. How often have you thought, I've finally failed enough He's got to be done with me. I've gone however many days without praying. 
however many years without reading his word, he's done with me. I miss church again. Not because I was sick, which is what I told everyone, but because I was hungover from Saturday night yet again. He is done with me. How many times I can't keep my eyes off of bad things on the internet. He has got to be done with me. What you need to hear. And you're saying he has got to be done with me. Is you are faithless. And he is faithful to faithless people. Because if you trust him, you are his And he cannot deny his own. He will not deny his own. You are at the table. Because he purchased your seat at the table. That's why you're at the table. Dwight Edwards put it this way. Everlasting love cannot be thwarted by temporal disobedience. Everlasting love cannot be thwarted by temporal disobedience. This is one of the most radical aspects of grace, that there is a love in the universe that we cannot shake free from even if we wanted to. Why can't it be shaken free from? Because it's all based on grace. I want to close with a thought from the Puritan titan, John Owen. John Owen had 11 kids. Um, Ten of them died before the age of two. And he's one of the most important writers in Christian history, quite frankly. He said this, From a Puritan, you would think that things would be very lofty. Hard to understand. Here's what Owen says. He says, The greatest unkindness you can do to the Father is to refuse to believe that he loves you. The greatest unkindness you can do to the Father is to refuse to believe that he loves you. As a father, and parents track with me on this, grandparents track with me on this, As a father, what would injure my heart most is not my daughter's disobedience. She's a sinner. She came into the world a sinner. I expect disobedience. I mean, it it almost never surprises me. I never go, wow, daughter of mine, I never knew you were capable of sin. Wow, I never knew that you were capable of repeated sin. So when she disobeys, you see, it doesn't crush me. And it doesn't really disappoint. Her disobedience far from injures my heart. Rather, you know what would really injure my heart the most? As her father? If she began to believe that she must do something Obey, give me gifts, try harder. 
in order for me to lavishly embrace her and call her mine. There is not a thing on this world that she has to do for me to embrace her and call her mine. What would crush me is she thought, even in the smallest way, she had to appease me to embrace her. For her to call my grace into question, friend, Owen's right. The greatest unkindness you can do to the Father is to refuse to believe that he loves you. Today is a day to stop doubting his grace towards you. The Father loves you. How do you know? He sent his son to die for you while you were still a sinner and bought your seat at the table. Let's pray. Father, help us to see you as you are. Many times we look up and imagine a God disinterested, slightly disappointed, not one seeking us out in the caves of the barren place. Seeking to show us grace, inviting us to the table, putting us there always. Help us to believe that and live out of that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to page 9 in your bulletin, we'll read Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It says, We remember the example of Paul and those in the early church upon whose shoulders we stand for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. We thank you for this opportunity to come here and worship you this morning. Thank you for all the good things you've given us. Thank you that just as you told the older son, everything that you have is ours already. You've given us Christ. We have everything. Thank you that we have a seat at the table to eat with you, to enjoy you, to fellowship with you as children. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be cheerful and generous givers. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we prepare for the offertory, uh, we'll pass the buckets around. If you would, uh, fill out the green Trinity Connect card. If you miss the bucket, you can leave it on the welcome table in the back. One other thing that I would call attention to is this booklet I have in my hand here called The God Who Gives. It's a five-day devotional booklet that's put out by uh, some of our denominational resources at the PCA Foundation. I think there's a lot of copies on the back table, so please pick up one of those and uh, have a look.
Um, some 3,000 years ago, David gave Mephibosheth a seat at the table. And about 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave you and me a seat at the table. I realize that we don't take the Lord's Supper sitting, but Jesus sure instituted it that way. He meant to spend time with us. And this supper not only looks in the present, it looks to the future when we will have a seat at the table at the wedding supper of the Lamb. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, giving thanks. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the remission of sins. All of you take and drink it. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Hear then what comfortable words our Savior Christ says to all who truly come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hear also what the Apostle Paul says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here also what the Apostle John says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right and good and a joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks unto you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God. And therefore, with angels and archangels and all of the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. This is the table of the Lord Jesus, not of Trinity. And therefore, it is open to every Christian who has been baptized into the triune name and is a part of the church where the gospel is preached. In a moment, as I pray, the elders will come forward and we will partake of the supper together here. And then you will have the option to go one of four stations at the front and two at the back. The red is wine and the white is grape juice. And if you need a gluten-free option, it's in a small plastic container. Friends, we get a seat at the table. Let's give thanks and pray. Father, we thank you that you've sent your son, that he has called us to himself. Help us to eat and drink by faith. He, our surety. And we long for the day when we will eat and drink together with him in person.
Lord Jesus, help us to know you. Amen.